I don't know if you've read his book, but in John Bunyan's great book, his great work, Pilgrim's Progress, you will find this pilgrimage of a man named Christian who was just that. And you'll find as he goes on his way, as he's venturing towards the celestial city, heaven, this Christian faces demons, he slays monsters, he escapes giants, and it is a wonderful allegory for this Christian life. Yet, despite all the perils in this book and all the dangers that Christian faced, perhaps the hardest thing Christian had to do in this story was to simply, simply just keep going. Just keep going. And at times, Pilgrim of Progress, again, if you've read it or if not, it is a heartbreaking read. Christian encounters believers on his path this entire time who had begun with intense joy and vigor, only to depart when the going got tough. In fact, for Christian himself, the greatest challenge for him, like I've already said, was just endurance, not monsters. It was perseverance, not giants. And sadly, I mean, you see collective church watching people leave the church, both this or as a whole, or watching people leave the faith is what it means to be part of the church. It comes with being part of the church. It comes with being in the faith is watching people leave it. So if you're like me, though, when you hear that, or you witness somebody fall around you, some are prone to wonder, could this happen to me? I saw that my buddy of mine fall, could that happen to me? What spiritual assurance do I have? What guarantees are in this thing called, called salvation? What kind of warranties come with my faith? which opens up these gnarly theological cans of worms, which force us to ask, can I lose my salvation? Can I sin so severely that God goes, yikes, check please. Like, is that possible? So then, what is our hope? What is our confident expectation? Well, friends, you're in luck. Hebrews chapter 6 doesn't just give us this little teeny TED talk about this very thing. Hebrews chapter 6, like we've been saying all morning, is a wrecking ball. And the stranger, that's who we've identified as this unknown, mysterious, berserk author. And as we established last week, if you need help, like a visual mental image of him, think of Jack Nicholson. That is what he was like. Think of as good as it gets meets the Joker from the best Batman movie. Yes, the first Batman movie. Think of those. Yes, the best for Bosco. I heard you challenging me right there. So that's how you think. If you want to think of the author, that is what he's like. And this brilliant stranger has penned what's been considered, like I said, in every academia, theological, ecclesiological, every logical circle, undoubtedly the most controversial and frequently debated passage in the New Testament and possibly the Bible. Commentator Warren Wiersbe has said this. He says, no chapter in the Bible, has disturbed people more than Hebrews chapter 6. And that is where we are here today. The intersection of what the what and super hard and confusing avenue, okay? So because of that, I want to read all of this in its entirety for clarity, the the hard portion, just to get the whole picture. So we're going to read a few verses, and then we're going to break some eggs and make a a delicious gospel omelet. It'll be good. Verse four of chapter six. For it is impossible 
For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, verse 5, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So when reading the Bible and trying to pull out its true meaning, not what we want it to say, not what we think it should say, we must always, always, always seek out context. And the context for this written sermon to the Hebrews, to these Jewish Christians, they were both under social and heavy persecution because they started to follow Jesus. But now they're wavering. They're considering, despite of what they know and believe, that this just might be the end of our Christianity of our Christian faith. We think we're done. And as we learned last week, they're dull of hearing, their bones are rotting with apathy, they're running low on steam, they're a short distance away from what's called in verse six, fallen. Fallen, which would make this a total catastrophe. See, the only problem is their author happens to be the unshy, uh, unshamed, you know, untamed and uncut pastor who delivers many warnings, this being the most searing, so just so everybody knows, write down your little journey journeys. This is a warning to both his audience and ours and to me. And he starts off with five descriptions, or you can call them five tornadoes, that his audience gets caught up with within Christianity. And I'm going to sort of blast these off kind of quick, just so everybody has a good frame of mind. So stay with me. The five tornadoes that they get caught up with, look at verse 4. Once have been enlightened. They saw the light. They are pushed out of darkness. They know the truth of Jesus. Number two, who have tasted the heavenly gift. This is most widely to believe uh, to be believed uh, in the Old Testament. It's the idea of manna falling from heaven. If you're familiar with that in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. This is referred to as God's gift from heaven and widely today believed practice as communion, which we have a chance to do today. Now, if you want to microwave your brain, look at this. You could understand the enlightening pillar, which led the Israelites, and manna, which came down from heaven. Those are both identified as gifts from God in Israel's journey in the wilderness. Isaac, what do you think of that? That's pretty cool, right? Thumbs up? Nobody else cares. But you and I care. Number three, have shared in the Holy Spirit. Shared means associated with, share or partner. This idea of shared is also the same word that's used in Hebrews 2.14. This is important. You'll see why later. Where it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. So this sharing idea is not like, oh, just a little share. No, this is a massive, full-blown share. Number four, tasted the goodness of the word of God. This means that they digested, eaten, swallowed, chewed every and each revelation from God. Many, many commentators will say, no, 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 no. He sipped it like cheap wine. He sipped it like cheap wine. No, 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 no. We mustn't minimize tasting metaphor here as though it's this lesser than full reception. They have not merely received in a superficial and external way. It has entered them and they have truly encountered and experienced this power. In the same way when it talks about Jesus tasting death, he didn't sip death, he ate every crumb of it. Verse five, and this will be the last one. The powers of the age to come. 
This word powers means a real dynamic experience and something ineffectual. And not something ineffectual, excuse me. Something that you're living in light of the future now. That is powerful. Okay. So I busted those out. Thank you for bearing with me. But all of these are hallmarks of the Christian faith. You've tasted in your, verse six, and then have fallen away. Remember what verse four said. It is impossible for you to be with all of these things. And he goes, and you fall away to restore them again. It's impossible to restore you again since they are crucifying once again the son of God. Friends, collective church, welcome to the controversy. This is it. And at this point, I'd like to invite up Pastor Lorenzo to take it the rest of the way. <laughs> I kid, I kid. But also, the controversy is so present, you can almost smell it. See, these words, which is so crazy, not only sound like it's impossible for the strongest of Christians to fall away, but what's more terrifying is that it is impossible for them to come back, to never be able to repent again. Wait, so is it possible, bear with me, to be so wrapped up in Christianity, so wrapped up, and then to sin so grossly that we can't repent? Now, I know repentance is sort of a churchy word, but if we know it and you practice it, we'll see it's this rich rhythm and source of life. It's an element of transformation, Christians believe, in somebody's mind and heart and life. And when we repent, rather than going that same direction, we run the opposite. And then from there, think differently, believe differently, feel differently, love differently, and ultimately live differently. So this is what the stranger is saying is impossible. Christians at a certain point can no longer run in the direction of the loving arms of God. Again, yikes. Well, when there's a confusing part, we have to take a small portion of scripture and weigh it to all of scripture. So how does the stranger's words weigh against the rest of scripture? They don't. It doesn't. How do we reconcile the stranger's words where the episodes of, think of, Peter in the New Testament who denied Jesus three times out of fear, one time to a little teen, saying to King David who committed adultery, murder, and lied about it. What about Abraham? Do you guys, we're going to talk about him a lot next week, but Abraham, oh boy, he told some people that his wife was a sister so that they could sleep with her just to save his own skin. And those are only a small instances and each and every one of those three were fully restored. So this isn't making sense. They all receive repentance. The stranger's words are not making sense. The Bible's object lessons and so-called spiritual giants are prostitutes, thugs, thieves, murderers, scoundrels, and scallywags. All of these God-fearing people were given rich repentance. I believe in some way they knew what the Lord communicates in his scriptures. John, I just want to sort of share these with you to give some reassurance that the stranger is at something else. He's at a different point. John 6 says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Philippians 3 says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And look at this, get this tattooed on your forehead because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Romans 8, 
very famous verses, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grip of God is the only constant this world can know. So I'm getting here, but bear with me. These biblical reflections provide iron-chained assurance for the weak, the downcast, the desperate, the vile sinners, the freaks and geeks, the marginalized. Because they're saying, if you didn't earn your salvation, you can't unearn it. So if Hebrews isn't saying it's possible to lose our salvation, or repentance is denied from faint-hearted sinners, then what? It's this defiant with a stern, stern probing of the genuineness of their faith. Let me flesh that out. In Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian comes to what's called the house of the interpreter, the interpreter is the Holy Spirit in this book. And the Holy Spirit, the interpreter, is taking him in this massive house or whatever, and he's taking him from room to room to room. And then one of the rooms... It's dark. And barely in the room, he sees this iron cage. And Christian goes, whoa, 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 let's not move on. What's with the iron cage? And as they press into the room, they see a man in the iron cage. And this is what it said about the man, that he had tasted God's good word, and he was once a flourishing professor on his way to the celestial city. And now this man is only known as the man in the iron cage in pure darkness. Christian, seeing this downtrodden, broken man, comes in and goes, why are you in this condition? What are you doing? What has happened? The imprisoned man responds with this. I have crucified him, Jesus, to myself afresh. I've despised his person. I've despised his righteousness. I've counted his blood an unholy thing. And I have done despite to the spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself you can see how the author of Pilgrim's Progress is drawing like a syringe from Hebrews 6. Verse 6 says to crucify once again and holding Christ to contempt is basically saying, I've despised this person, I've counted his blood as an unholy thing. This has to be some of the most fearful, frightful words and imagery one can hear. And actually in Pilgrim's Progress, when he hears it, and he hears this man in the cage say it, you know what Christian says? He He goes, this is a fearful thing. To hold Christ in contempt, other translations communicate this. It says, shame on you, Jesus. That's what it means. Shame on you, Jesus. It's the image of one at the bottom of the cross, spitting upon Christ, shaking a fist at his shredded body and screaming till your voice hurts. I don't believe you are who you say you are. This isn't doing it for me, Jesus, upon the cross. The worst translation that many scholars believe is the person is at the bottom of the cross saying, you deserved this, Jesus. So collective church, hold on to your hat. This is showing us why it's impossible to find repentance for some. If the cross was not sufficient for them, leaving Christianity, the stranger says, is like desiring to uh, to die, to be crucified one more time. It's like saying, Jesus, die again because the first time, not so hot. Do it better, Jesus. 
They're tempted to believe that Jesus did not succeed, that Jesus and the cross did not succeed, that Jesus and the cross is really the only true source of repentance and salvation. And they're saying that's not enough. They're tempted to walk away and prove that point. Of course, this is impossible. Christ is sufficient. So we have to remember Hebrews is saying that there is no other sacrifice to go back to. This is in between the whole priest idea, the priest theology we've been talking about. They want to go back to a priest. They want to go back to old rituals. They want to go back to, to old temples, to old sacrifices. And the stranger's like, that doesn't exist anymore. Why do you want to go back there? It's gone. And we do this as well in contemporary churches and individuals can also do this today. Perhaps some are considering this here today. So let me explain how we can do this in contemporary churches and circles. To reject Christ and think, no, there's another way. So there's another way, such as thinking that there are many roads which lead to the celestial city or heaven, or to think that God gives people another chance to want to or that anyone will eventually be restored whether they want to or not. Obviously, I don't have time to unpack that. We barely have enough time to do Hebrews chapter six. There's so much murkiness there and so much can be said. But Hebrews six seeks to say to deny the cross for those considerations puts Christ to open shame, to contempt. Again, why you ask? Because it makes Jesus a liar and it makes God unjust. This is not enough, makes Jesus a liar. It makes a complete mockery of the fully sufficient, all-consuming, debt-paid, sin-destroying, God-pleasing, peace-bringing, devil-defeating cross of Jesus Christ. So to defy what Christ offers, Jesus says this in the Gospel of Mark. To defy this, this is what he says. And this is one of the heaviest things we hear in all of the Bible from the mouth of Jesus. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. The children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, where many people go, this is so harsh of Jesus. This is actually proof of love for Jesus. See, this isn't because the Holy Spirit is so sensitive that to say something against him, he's like, fine, I don't want to go to the dance with you. You're not allowed in. That's not what's happening. He's not super sensitive or easily offended. No, 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 no. It's because to come so close, like these Hebrew Christians were doing, so near that you could taste and experience the shared work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being the seal of salvation, the provider of transformation, the only one who draws us near to Christ. To get that close and to say, no. Only shows that you can get as close as you can. And then to willfully, determinedly deny all of this, God says, okay. Okay. God honors all present refusals and leaves one be forever. And that is a sin for which he says, Jesus says, stranger says, there is no forgiveness. 
Now, I know many probably have feared. I did in the early years of my Christianity that I may have accidentally blasphemed the Holy Spirit. It's like, well, I'm goner. I'm done. (laughs) But let me just sort of unpack that as, as little as I can, but as much as I can. But if you are worried or concerned that you have done this, that right there proves you haven't. The final falling away to which Jesus and the writer of Hebrews are referring to includes the removal of any desire to be reconciled to Jesus. It is a perpetual, present denial, 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 refusal, 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 reject. So what the man in the iron cages teaches us and what I believe Hebrews 6 warns us with is that it's not possible to lose our salvation. Like there's an open hole in a fence and the dog escapes. It is not possible to lose our salvation, but it is possible to leave our salvation. Where we can kick the dog out and like white fang him and throw rocks at him. It is possible to kick him. Hebrews 6 isn't about people who sin and can't receive forgiveness. This is about people who refuse forgiveness. This isn't about people looking for the cross. This is about people who are cursing the cross. This isn't about superficial faith. This is about fueling a saving salvation faith. Even with that salvation presented in scripture, if you guys look at the words, even the word believe, when it is in this type of context, it is always present tense. Never it is just like believe. Remember when you believed? It's like believe now. It's the posture of faith and repentance at the moment you start to follow Jesus to eternity. So then if one permanently abandons that posture at some point on their pilgrimage, then it's probably not likely it ever was a saving faith to begin with. All of this is known as apostasy, if you're familiar with that word. The Hebrew audience understood the gospel like many of us do, the resurrection like many of us do, the love of God like many of us do, the sweetness of grace, the, the beautiful aspect of his mercy, the, the, the wonder of being known and fully loved. But they also knew that this, there was no other sacrifice. There was no other plan B for God. There's nothing else God can offer. There's no other ritual, religion, philosophy that they can turn to to reconcile them with God. They knew this. And yet they were still tempted to renounce all of it. If they do this, the stranger says, no, that makes you an apostate. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he has all these metaphorical cities with incredible names. Here's just a couple of them. They're called carnal policy. One's called uncertain. There's even a city called stupid. Uh, It's really great. But there's even a city called apostasy in this pilgrimage. There's a city called apostasy. And all of these cities combined in like the tri-state area, whatever you want to call it, all of them combined are called cities of destruction. Apostasy, our author says, is a journey towards the city of destruction. But I'd be curious, what do you think I mean, what do you think happens to bring a person to such high-stakes decision with God and with their faith? I mean, what has to transpire in somebody's life to bring them to the point where they're going, I know all of it. I'm out. We know for the Hebrew audience, it was persecution, but what can we say for in that consideration before? Are you in it now? Is it possible for you to be in it in the future? 
I'll answer the question for you. Yes, it is possible. The amount of incredible pastors who have mentored me, taught me sermons, prayed over me, laid hands upon me, encouraged me, read the Bible with me, the amount of them I served with who no longer call upon Christ, who no longer love the Bible, who no longer sing in church. For years and decades, they served as incredible ministers in the end to just burn it all. I don't doubt that many of us have seen or been around pastors or ministers where this has happened before. This is the very analogy Hebrews 6 uses. Look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain, this is his agriculture illustration, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Christians... Christians who have sucked into their roots and drank deeply the favor and truth of God like dry lands in a monsoon and yet do not produce one iota of anything green and only thorns and thistles. The stranger says that land is pointless. Might as well just burn it. Now I should probably answer a few lingering questions or concerns at this point. I want to give two helpful footnotes for anybody here who's going, I object but won't say it out loud. Don't say it out loud. Don't, don't, don't say it out loud. But anybody who's thinking in their mind, you can object with me after. Here's the two footnotes I want to give. First, for other people. The book of Hebrews is not, I say this because I know when you talk about this type of stuff, many of us are thinking, what about Joe? Or what about my dad? Or what about my grandpa? Or my friend? I know that this conjures up those types of questions, so I want to address it. The book of Hebrews is not making a definitive statement about any one person's salvation. No one can do that but God. That's important to know because many of us wish we could order or systematize our salvation. Ain't possible. But since we can't, that means we never stop assuming or never stop knowing that that impossibility may not partake here or be a part of this here. So yes, we keep praying for Joe and our neighbor and our dad and so on and so forth. Yes, we keep telling others about the love of Jesus. Yes, we keep stoking the coals of our hope. Second footnote is for ourselves. First one, others, now for ourselves. If anyone has heard what Hebrews 6 says and thought, oh, this has happened to me. Or this must have been what happened to me because I no longer feel this. I'm no longer into it. I'm no longer excited about it. Or again, the agricultural illustration and wonder, is that what's wrong with me? That's just all burned. Be comforted. Hebrews 3 says, if you hear God's voice now, and if you're wondering if that's you, I believe that's the Holy Spirit wooing or inviting you. If you hear God's voice today, the book of Hebrews chapter 3 says, do it. Listen obey. We have the opportunity now to repent, that beautiful, rich running towards God. So Hebrews 6 establishes that we might not know where people eternally stand. Nonetheless, we have to be vigilant. This apostasy, I'm just going to let everybody know, is subtle and imperceptible. Nobody wakes up on Monday morning going, oh my gosh, I'm an apostate. It doesn't happen. It does not happen. 
My wife and I were watching the news the other day about uh, the volcanoes in Hawaii. It's a devastating thing, but the news anchor called it something that fits so perfectly what apostasy, what happens to apostasy. It's this. He called the volcano a slow motion disaster. That is exactly what happens with apostasy. It is a slow motion disaster. Let me give you a couple of examples of what could be some of that slow motion for some of our lives. It could be growing disillusioned and discouraged with the church. It could be growing complacent and apathetic in worship. We're about to sing and do worship in a little bit. Becoming forgetful and infrequent with prayer, assuming the gospel and yet never giving it serious thought or weighing its crucial value. Another slow motion disaster in our life could be the start of excusing and rationalizing sin rather than fighting it. Simply not taking one's spiritual responsibility serious. Now, I'm not saying any of those things all of a sudden make you men and women in darkness and iron cages, but we must watch for ticks of slow motion disaster. It should be sobering to every Christian in this room, in the church, whether you're super faithful here every Sunday or not. But when Paul, another New Testament author, says in another part of the New Testament, when he tells another church these words in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 13, this should sober the living daylights out of us. He tells Christians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. That is gnarly Charlie. My goodness. So as John Bunyan, you know, in his book, as Christian progressed in his pilgrimage, he went through what was called like the slew of despair, the valley of the shadow of doubt. He went through like Doubting Castle, all these different places. But if you read the book, these were not supposed to be the darkest or the most disturbing of times, but the most strengthening. Because it was there in Christian's moments of endurance, his assurance was that is that moment that Christ was most clearly seen. In those moments, those moments where he wanted to give up, Christ was most clearly seen. This is also true of Hebrews chapter six. This chapter's purpose, I just want to say this now, this is where we get to the good juice. His, this chapter's purpose is not to leave us like bereaved of comfort and hope, implying that our gospel ground may just fall from within our feet. It is rather to summon all who follow Jesus and those who don't, to press on. Slews of despair or doubting castles in our life, press on. Hard marriage, press on. Trauma has met you, press on. Struggling to overcome, press on. Friends, let's not make chapter six, or let's not misread it and think this is one of the most disturbing. No, what you have before you is one of the most encouraging portions of the Bible ever. I love author Douglas Wilson's rightful cheering of these words. I'll read it to you. He says, if believers come away in despair from a study of the sixth chapter of Hebrews, this is an indication of a serious misread. This portion of scripture provides some of the strongest comfort that can be found in the Bible. Look at how the stranger picks up their dragging limbs after basically demolishing them. Look at verse nine. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, yet in your case, beloved. One of the most dearest terms of affection in all of the Bible. It means preferred one. Your spouse, your Lord, whatever it is, your child, that is your preferred one. That is your beloved. 
despite the warnings that he gives about falling away, Hebrews goes on to say that he is convinced of better things. He's confident in themselves more than they are confident in themselves. Why? Because he sees the spiritual fruit. You love the name of God. You're serving people. So those verses are saying, and I was just thinking, this is such a beautiful, strong exhortation. Actually, Andy brought this to my attention that the, that the stranger knows his congregation, his community so well to spurn them on. He's so involved to spurn them on more than they realize themselves, I am confident of better things. So not only are we supposed to know each other to such intimate levels, we're supposed to encourage one another with that same level of intimacy. Look at verse 11. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have what? The full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So some of you right now, some of you theological bigwigs can come up and fight me on this, but I would say that these entire verses are about endurance because a saving faith is an enduring faith. A saving faith is not slug-like, if you remember last week. You see, so much of this controversy is wrapped up in, are these Christians? Is this audience Christians? Are they like barely Christians? Are they not Christians? Which camp? Yes. The answer to that is yes. The stranger is saying proof of one's salvation lies in the question, will their faith keep going? We know if we endure, that is proof of salvation. I want to make sure you hear me. I'm not saying that if, if we endure, it's the basis of our salvation. That makes salvation our own works and doings. But I do believe that to endure is proof. Pastor J.D. Greer says it this way. We strive to persevere to show us that we are saved. Assurance comes from continuing to show the same diligent faith you started with. This is the idea of a pilgrim's progress. A pilgrim's progress. What did the stranger say in chapter three? But Christ is faithful as a son of God, as a son over God's house. And if we are his house, what? If, if, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now I'm saying in a million different ways because I want it to be as clear and try to reach everybody and where they're at. Hebrews is defining true believers as those who hold firmly to the end. Those who aren't Christians here right now, notice, notice this about Christianity. Christianity does not always provide the way of escape from pain or persecution, but it does provide hope to actually face it. And when that happens and when hope meets hardship, it's there we encounter endurance. I want to make sure I say that again. When hope meets hardship, it's there we encounter endurance. When hope doesn't mean hardship, our endurance in this pilgrimage is proof that we actually believe what we say we believe. The trustworthiness of God in his word, the accomplishment and the finishing work of Jesus and the present power and partnership of the Holy Spirit. Hope, hope, hope. The question then becomes, will you, will I endure? Now, Tomorrow, 20 years from now, whatever your faith may confront, will you, will I endure? 
I'll end with this. Christian on his journey would see these really dark moments, these faith-shaking moments, and rather than Christian coming up in his progress saying, it's too hard, or saying, I want to go back, this is what Christian on his pilgrim's progress famously said. This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Will you pray with me?